Well, welcome to session eight of TLS, um, Theology the Live Sessions, or Theology with Light Scones, depending on your point of view. Uh, they're Lemon and Sultana today, apparently, so. Um, one thing I will mention just before I get going, for the benefit of those on the podcast, um, we are obviously using notes here when we do it live here, but the notes are all available for all the sessions on the King's Church website, so that is www.kingschurch.co.uk. Um, I just thought I'd point that out because you can actually get the hard copies and, uh, and follow along if you want as well. Um, right, before I get started on on this one, I thought I'd just, because I've had a couple of conversations with Samantha where she kind of came back to me on a few of the points from one or two of the other sessions, and I thought, well, if she's thinking those things, then maybe other people are. So I thought, well, I'll just recap a tiny bit on a couple of things and maybe just clarify a couple of things and maybe it'll be helpful. Um, <clears throat> so the first thing, one of the things we were talking about was the, the session we did on the atonement. Um, and you kind of just mentioned this, Liv, uh, Liv which is quite uh, interesting. But Samantha was saying, you know, because obviously I, I came from the came at the atonement from the point of view of really putting the the, the story of Israel back in in the centre of it, um, which you do need to do, um, and of course it then becomes a story of Jesus being a substitute and a representative for Israel, and then that follows through to everybody else. But it's hard to explain that in a in a short. Um, you know, just a short few words. And, and Samantha was saying, well, how, where does that leave us? How does that affect us as non-Jews, if you like? So I thought, okay, maybe I didn't explain that quite as clearly as I could have done. So the, what I said was that the, what Jesus did, not so much that he was punished by God for sin, but he took the consequences and, and absorbed all the covenant curses. So that was the covenant curses in Deuteronomy, um, which obviously is from the point of view of the, the Old Testament people of Israel and they, they failed in their mandate and therefore Jesus took upon himself those curses. And through that, the rest of the world could be blessed. So the blessing of Abraham that they were supposed to transmit to the rest of the world could then get out, you know, whereas before the blessing couldn't get out to the rest of us because of, of, of Israel's um, inability to do the job. So where does that leave us? Well. I did talk about the fact that Israel was kind of meant to suffer for the world and so on, but I think perhaps a simpler and a clearer way to, to see it, and I think a valid way to see it, is that we were also under a curse. You know, the whole world was under a curse, you know, the curse of sin, the curse that was brought in the Garden of Eden. Um, you know, there's a curse on creation, but, but also just generally on humanity. So I think it's very valid to say that Jesus not only did that for Israel but he did that for us in other words he took our curse upon himself he took the, the the consequences of all our sin so that we could have our own exodus you know our own release from exile um, so I think that's very valid to say that so if you're in a situation where somebody says well are you saying that Jesus didn't pay for my sin then you can say well he did in a way um, he took the consequences of our sin he, he, he absorbed the curse that we brought upon ourselves as humanity through through sin and absorbed it and found a way through so that there's no curse left for us so hopefully that's helpful does that does that answer the question you had Liv mm. yeah brilliant 
Okay, so I don't want to spend too long on that because I want to get onto the session we're going to uh, to talk about. Um, the other thing was justification, uh, and this is a little, and it's not exactly an erratum, but uh, Samantha pointed out after I was talking to her about the session, she said, yeah, but there is another word in the Old Testament for just for, for justice. Because if you remember, I said that in the Bible there's only one word for justification and righteousness and it's all the same and I said there were two word groups justice just justification and righteous and righteousness and I said that those two are the same and it's actually true they are the same when you're talking about those subjects but in the Old Testament there is another word which is often translated as justice which is a is a different word group so I'm saying this just in case you come across a scripture that talks about your righteousness and justice and you think well hang on Paul said they were the same thing um, but whenever it's talking about righteousness and justification it really is only one word it's just that one word justice that is in the Old Testament so a little caveat you know somebody points out well hang on there are two words well yeah there are but wherever it's talking about um, our justification or righteousness or God's righteousness it really is only one so that's just me dotting the I's and crossing the T's but really the center of the gospel is adoption not justification you know in, in Western theology we've tended to substitute legal fixes for um, for relationship so really the center of you know the, the focus of salvation is on is on our adoption to sonship which is fantastic so okay so that was a couple of um, quick quick caveats quick um, recaps on last time and obviously uh, do ask me outside the sessions if you want to uh, know any more but today we're going to talk about eternity and I've subtitled this is heaven where we're headed um, and this really follows on from the gospel session uh, because of its effect on the whole of creation you know and I talked about the gospel and how it just it covers everything and it's massive. So the first quote I've got here is from Richard Middleton and he says there is not one single reference in the Bible to heaven as the eternal destiny of the believer. <laughs> now that might come as a shock to many Christians um, but it is true. So what then do we make of heaven? You know the idea of course of coming you know, as Christians, we believe that one day there's going to be a whole new state of affairs. There's going to be a whole new uh, position in, in, in our lives and in creation generally where there's an end to suffering, that sin and death are in the past. And, and that's great. And that's going to be an eternal state. And that isn't in question. Um, and it's a great encouragement to us. But very often, um, you know, in popular thought and uh, in songs and whatever else, the the idea of the of heaven is that, that you know the faithful believer is sort of whisked off after death to this other place somewhere a um, place called heaven where they will live with God for eternity wearing a nighty wearing a or wings or, or strumming a harp or something like that but um, is it actually biblical you know people don't question these things but is it actually biblical and what we need to do of course is to find out what the bible writers were actually going on about when they wrote about it so we're back to the hermeneutical principles you know what did the author of these words actually want to say and then we can hopefully unravel 
the confusion. So I've got in the notes here I've got four different common confusions that people have and they, they're kind of linked with each other really. So, But the first confusion, confusion number one, heaven is non-physical. So people often imagine that when you go to heaven you don't have a physical body, you consist purely of spirit in some kind of floaty non-corporeal state. Um, that's actually more about Greek philosophy than about the Bible. So um, the Greeks saw, you know, people like Plato, you know, they, they saw that, or they believed, that the physical world was less important and less real than the non-physical. They, they, you know, they, that was behind a lot of Gnosticism. Gnosticism was a heresy that was around mainly in the second century, but it drew heavily on Greek philosophy and what they believed that matter was evil. So your body was evil, flesh was evil, and had to be destroyed, you know. And so they, they kind of went one of two ways. Either they treated the body really harshly and were really kind of strict with themselves, or they said, it doesn't matter what we do, and they lived how they liked in all kinds of immorality and whatever. Uh, and these are people that were supposedly <coughs> followers of Jesus, you know. Um, but anyway, so Gnosticism believed that matter was evil and had to be destroyed, whereas Stoic philosophers, Stoicism said that the physical world would burn up and then be reborn, a bit like the phoenix, but, but reborn in exactly the same condition that it is now. Whereas the Bible doesn't go for any of that. What we have in the Bible is a God who's going to cleanse and transform and renew physical creation. So the first thing is that eternity will involve a physical universe. Uh, Romans 8, 18 to 25, um, read it later, but it's all about creation, waiting for the, the children of God to be revealed, and it's waiting for its liberation from its bondage to decay. And, the, and Paul's image there is about creation receiving its own exodus, you know, its own liberation. Um, so basically creation is not eagerly awaiting its own destruction, it's awaiting its liberation, it's awaiting its recreation, if you like. So our, and it's tied in with our resurrection in that passage. Now our resurrection involves creation being restored and fully renewed, so it's a physical creation in, in eternity. So confusion number two, heaven is somewhere else, you know, and there's a little picture of a man getting a taxi and going off, presumably after death, <laughs> with his suitcase. You can't take it with you, you know. Um, but an awful lot of preaching and so many songs um, that we that that are sung. You know, we, we try not to. I mean, I usually point them out if we accidentally sing one. But <laughs> but um, even little lines in songs it assumes that the goal of the Christian life is to be transported away from here to heaven somewhere else. Um, People say, I'm just passing through, you know, or I'm going home, you know, and this is, you, you can sort of argue those things a little bit from scripture in that, I mean, you were saying this morning, you were talking about being a sojourner, a sojourner, um, but people do talk about in the Bible being aliens and strangers in a foreign land, because the key alien in the foreign land was Abraham. He wasn't about to leave that land and not come back. He was going to inherit that land. Mm. You know, yes, he was a stranger in the system, the world, and we are. We're strangers in the world system at the moment. We don't belong in that world system, in the present sphere. But that doesn't mean we're going to leave the earth. That doesn't mean we're going to go off somewhere else. You know, we, we are to inherit the earth, the Bible says, not 
sort of leave it to its own devices. Um, so people point to Philippians 3, 19 to 21, they talk about, it talks about being a citizen of heaven. And they say, well, that means that one day we're going to go there away from the earth. Um, and it's actually more like Gnosticism again, because in Gnosticism, the idea was that you had this, your soul was kind of this immortal spark that had originated somewhere else in the non-physical world, had come into the physical world for a while, and then it longed to be released back into the non-physical, and that's Gnosticism. So being a citizen of heaven, it doesn't say we're going to go there. Actually, it says we await a saviour from there, is what the passage actually says. Um, so the image that Paul is, is talking about is, is of a Roman colony, because Philippi that he was writing to was a, a Roman colony, and it depended on Rome for all of its defending and, and support. So if Philippi got into trouble, the citizens of Philippi, the Roman citizens there, wouldn't be thinking, oh, we'd better get back to Rome. They would be expecting that the Roman emperor and all his armies would come and rescue them and defeat their enemies and, and sort everything out. Um, and that's the image that Paul is talking about. So the direction of travel isn't towards Rome, it's from Rome. They were there to bring the culture of Rome to their city. Mm. And in the same way, we are citizens of heaven, so we're in the world to bring the culture and the standards of heaven to our surroundings, not to kind of leave the world to its own devices and just get on out of here, you know. We're a colony of heaven in the world. So, so that passage doesn't say we're going off somewhere else. So rather than thinking of heaven as a location somewhere far away, I've got a little dimensional picture here, it's quite handy that really. But, <laughs> uh, it's, the Bible writers think of heaven as, as God's dimension of reality. So it's a sphere or a dimension where God's will is perfectly done, where he is uh, his presence is fully experienced uh, and at the moment this it's almost like this dimension runs in parallel with with the earthly dimension but it's normally invisible it's not seen it's separated at the moment because of sin and the fall and everything else but the intention is for heaven and earth to be reunited which we'll talk a bit about later the great thing, of course, is that all the way through the Bible, this is being foreshadowed. So when Jacob has his dream, um, you know, with his head on a stone, and he, he has a dream of a ladder going between <coughs> heaven and earth, and angels ascending and descending on this ladder, there's a link that God wants to make between heaven and earth, a reuniting. And, of course, it's just amazing to trace that through, because he calls it Bethel, the house of God, the gate of heaven, he says. And, uh, and later, of course, they build the, the house of God. They build the tabernacle and then the temple, which is the more permanent version of it, where it's seen as the meeting place, the intersection between heaven and earth. And it's particularly in the Holy of Holies on the, the top of the atonement cover on the ark between the cherubim, that was where the focus of the meeting point was between heaven and earth. And of course, Jesus is the fulfillment of all that. He is the temple. You know, he becomes the meeting point. He says, you've seen angels, you know, he refers to the passage about the ladder and says, you'll see angels ascending and descending on the Son of Man. You know, talking to Nathaniel, I think. Um, and 
he's saying, look, I am Bethel. I am the house of God and I am the gate of heaven. I'm the meeting place between heaven and earth. And of course, in Christ, you and I become that. We become that meeting place between heaven and earth. You know, we, we incarnate the Christ. You know, we are his body on the earth, so we are the gate of heaven. You know, we are now, the, corporately and individually, we are the meeting place between heaven and earth. So, again, there's many, many more points of intersection. And, of course, the whole point of the Lord's Prayer is let your will be done on earth, you know, as, you, as it is in heaven. Let your kingdom come on earth. And so, there's a desire in God that will be fulfilled to reunite heaven and earth so also heaven is where God's purposes for us are stored up so 1 Peter 1 4 uh, it talks in there about there being an inheritance kept in heaven for you and people often think about this and think oh wouldn't it be lovely to go to heaven and find my inheritance there but actually we need to see that more as um, if you say to a child there's a Christmas present kept safe in the cupboard for you the child isn't thinking, oh, I want, to, I want to go and live in the cupboard. <laughs> he wants the present to be brought out of the cupboard where he, so he can enjoy it where he is now, you know. Um, and that's what it is. Our inheritance is kept safe in heaven for us. You know, all God's, you know, we reap what we sow. And what we sow in this life, we will reap not just in this life, but in the life to come. And all of that inheritance... And, and just God's generosity and goodness and blessing is all stored up in heaven for us. You know, for now we've got to suffer a little while, trials and, and you know, Paul said, you know, minor things like being shipwrecked and stoned and flogged and all that. <laughs> but we have in heaven an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade. But that inheritance is coming here. We don't have to go there to get it. It's coming. It's coming where we are. So that was confusion number two, that heaven is somewhere else. Confusion number three, heaven is outside time. Now I'm not pretending to kind of fully understand all the physics of all this, um, but sometimes people think of heaven as being somehow divorced from the space-time world that we're in. So either they think heaven is some kind of future state, um, when actually we need to think of it as God's dimension of present reality in the here and now, but also they get confused with this word eternal life or this phrase eternal life and they think of eternity as this kind of timeless state now as i say i'm not going to quibble about you know the exact physics of you know four dimensional space time whatever you know i, I enjoy science fiction i'm all into other dimensions and time travel and all that i, I enjoy all that kind of stuff but when paul and john in the bible it's mainly them when they talk about eternal life, the actual words they're using is pretty certain that rather than talking about endless time or talking about um, timelessness, what they're actually talking about is the life of the age to come. And that's the, because it ha that's the, the sort of phrase they're talking about. So as, as good Old Testament believing Jews, they believed that the Messiah was coming, and obviously he had come by then, but the, the Messiah, the King, was going to bring in this new age of the Spirit, a new creation, the dead would be raised, all of Israel's enemies would be defeated, and all evil would be destroyed, and then this, this new age would be one of, of joy and peace and, and amazing stuff. 
and they believed that would happen at the end of the ages. But Jesus' resurrection and the fact that the Spirit had been outpoured made them reevaluate, and they began to think, you know what, this age has already started. You know, the, the old age hasn't yeah. finished yet, but the new age has actually mm -hmm. started. So between Jesus' first coming and Jesus' second coming, we're kind of between the times, you know, we're in the overlap of two ages. Mm -hmm. So the age to come is in one sense already here. In another sense, it hasn't yet fully been consummated. It's, it's been inaugurated, but not consummated. So Hebrews 6 verse 5 says, we've tasted the powers mm -hmm. of the coming age. So eternal life is, doesn't mean sort of whisking off to a place where time no longer exists. It means we're experiencing the life of the age to come in the here and now. And that's, that's what it means. So yes, eternal life begins now. And yes, it does continue forever. And who knows what space-time will look like? Yeah, who knows what space-time will look like? You know, in in uh, in the future, I don't know. Um, but it's not that heaven is outside of time. Heaven is God's reality, God's present reality, His His dimension, right now. So, confusion number four, um, and this is quite a big one. Um, confusion four is heaven will replace the earth. Now, there's a passage in 2 Peter 3, uh, 5 to 13, which talks about the elements being destroyed and burning up in the heat and um, the world and everything in it and all that kind of stuff, and comparing it with the flood, Noah's flood. And people often use that to say that the earth is going to be destroyed and replaced with something else, maybe heaven. You know, and people talk about... Um, you know, when we get to heaven, then such and such, you know, and they assume that this present world is going to be destroyed. But the, if, you th if you look at the passage for what it is, it talks about the old world being destroyed by the flood. And in actual fact, the word destroyed there is, is an even stronger word than the word it uses for being destroyed by fire. Be it when it's being destroyed by fire, um, it talks about fire loosing or dissolving or breaking. But the word destroy for the flood it uses is utterly destroyed, you know. So, um, so the language that it is being used there is the apocalyptic style, such as you get in Revelation and Daniel and other places, in, in a few places. But it's extreme dramatic imagery that we don't necessarily need to take scientifically and literally, you know, as in all the elements, you know, hydrogen, helium, magnesium, you know, all being burned. They didn't have those, they didn't know about those anyway in those days. But um, what we need to think of is that this is a reference to the cleansing fire that removes evil and radically transforms the world. Because if you think about it, the world was destroyed by the flood, but it didn't disappear. It was still there. It was the same earth, but just radically remodeled, cleansed of evil, re renewed, and it looked different, but it was the same physical world. And I believe that's what is going to happen at the end of the age. You know, there will be this, this fire, this, this whatever it is, um, that will radically remodel and transform this world, but it's the same world. Um, and that was the expectation that they had. You know that the flood after the flood the world continued and after the final judgment the the world will continue but as a new heaven and a new earth so it's not going to be you know 
rolled, rolled away and thrown in the bin. And God, you know, it's not like God's going to start with something new, but it will be new. You know, there will be a discontinuity. So we'll have a, um, a break now. We're going to have a little bit of a discussion um, and uh, we'll see what we think about this. So if we start with the, the common misconception that eternity will be spent in, in a heaven away from this world with the present creation destroyed and done away with, how might this affect a couple of things, either or both, our approach to environmental concerns, so you know, looking after the, the creation, or the likelihood of our taking social action in communities. You know, some people get very hot under the collar about a social gospel, you know, and uh, we should be getting souls saved for eternity. So have a think about that, and we'll come back in, a, in about 10 minutes. All right, let's get going again. Um, just, uh, it was an interesting conversation, um, as a result of which I think I need to just clarify what I meant about timelessness, just for the record. Um, by timelessness, what I'm talking about is this concept of being outside over and above time. I'm not saying that heaven doesn't last forever, and I'm not saying that eternity doesn't last forever. I do believe it does, uh, just to, to clarify that. And, and to be honest, that is the point where... Um, you know there are different views and you can have a view of of um, of eternity being outside time but what I was trying to get across was this idea that eternal life is the life of the age to come uh, that we have now um, oh you need session two don't you um, that should be it and uh, and that heaven is God's present reality now God's dimension now so but we can debate the physics of it, no problem. Um, okay, so we discussed the idea of if people think that the earth is going to be destroyed and we're all going to be away somewhere else in heaven, we're not going to have a very keen approach potentially to the environment, creation care, you know, green issues, recycling and all that. If it's all going to be burned up, why do we bother caring for nature? Um, similarly, um, if there's no continuity at all um, between this life and the next, and if we believe the world's going from bad to worse, does it actually help to engage in social action in communities? You know, do, do you just think, well, the worse it gets, the more they'll see their need for Jesus, and then they'll repent, and then they'll go to heaven? You know, and, and some people think like that to a greater or lesser degree. Um, but if we believe, actually, that God is going to renew and restore this earth, then why not get started now? Mm. You know, because firstly, it, it shows what God is like. So it demonstrates who God is and his desire. We're prophetically saying this is God's desire for the earth. This is God's desire for your community. This is why we're engaging in this in this. Um, these social activities we're actually bringing the kingdom to people and to communities but if we believe that what we're building is something that can carry over into eternity then it encourages us and it validates what we're doing now um, it may be of course I'm not saying that um, there's no discontinuity you know there is there will be a, a crisis moment when the when the whole thing is changed um, but the but the reality is that there's going to be a carryover between what we do now 
and what we see in eternity because what we sow now we'll reap then and that'll be the case in people's lives in the earth and so on so it, it anticipates the coming of the kingdom when we do these things but it also implements it now and in ways that we can't yet quite understand it will carry over into eternity so that's why so part two then the authentic christian hope um, and we have to remember that they came out of a jewish context so not a greek one primarily so it wasn't about release from this physical body but it was always for a bodily resurrection into a renewed physical world where god's presence was fully present once more so sometimes people have this hazy idea about resurrection that it's some kind of it's all it is is really a kind of survival of the soul after death and you think no it's more than that you know it's, it's a physical new indestructible glorious body that's given to us suited for life in the age to come it'll be like his glorious body philippians 3 21 you know it can never die again but it's just as physical and just as real in fact more physical and more real than our present bodies according to c.s lewis um, you know what, what we're going to be doing in the age to come who knows you know but what you can say just from what we know of god and what we know of this life it's going to be glorious it's going to be creative because we're made in that creative image of god it'll be full of joy it'll be free it'll be satisfying but we will then be fulfilling our original task our true mandate to be god's image throughout the universe so we will be maybe we'll travel to other planets and other galaxies i don't know but we'll be spreading the image of god and the knowledge of god and the influence of god wherever we go so that's that's us being a royal priesthood or a kingdom of priests you know it's 1 peter 2 9 is echoing what it said in exodus 19 verse 6 about us being a kingdom of priests of people who mediate god's goodness to creation and that's going to be what we're going to be doing you know not just strumming away on harps um i'm sure there will be music and there will be musical instruments but we'll be doing a lot more than that we'll be creating stuff you know I, i'm an engineer so i like to think i'll be able to create the most amazing technology to do stuff you know to glorify god to achieve things to to travel places to you know who knows what's out there so exciting stuff I think we've now? started yeah yeah we've started we, we start now um, with our you know with our you know we've got jars of clay at the moment with this treasure in it um, so we have some limitations because of that but increasingly I believe we're going to learn to overcome those limitations as you as you as you've been saying you know and um, and actually do this now so yeah so this is not purely for the future this is something we start now and and grow into more and more and then of course there'll be a transformation of our bodies which will release us to do that but even then i believe there'll be a development in our minds and in our thinking and, and in our expectation and in our abilities we'll continue to learn and grow you know who knows what we'll become so uh revelation 21 verses 3 to 4 uh wonderful wonderful verses look god's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them they will be his people and god himself will be with them and be their god he will wipe every tear from their eyes there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain 
for the old order of things has passed away. And uh, he's quoting there, John is, well, he's, he's quoting God, I think, speaking, or an angel, I can't remember who it is that's speaking there, but, he, but in there there's a quote from Isaiah, he will wipe every tear from their eyes and there'll be no more death. And right back in the Old Testament, in Isaiah 25, I think it is, it's, it's echoing this, that the idea is that God is going to live visibly, demonstrably with his people. And, and he is already with us. We are already united with him in spirit, but there's going to come a time when even, even the, the veil of sight will be drawn back and heaven and earth will be fully reintegrated and reunited. And uh, if you read through the book of the end of the book of Revelation, there it's it's describing almost like um, a kind of restored Garden of Eden. You know, the things that happened in the garden are there. You've got these rivers and trees and so on. But it's now in the form of a garden city. Interestingly, it says there's no sea there, and people often take that literally because they often take things literally. And some people who like the sea kind of get a bit disappointed because you think, well, I like the sea, you know, it's massive, it's dramatic, it's wonderful, I like the sea and all the things that live in the sea. Well, relax, because the sea in the Bible is often a symbol of chaos and instability and particularly unrest among the nations, yeah. um, you know, wickedness and, uh, and so on. And so the fact that there's no more sea in this prophetic image just means that all the kind of unrest of the nations and the, and the wickedness and the instability that's in the world at the moment is gone. It's a thing of the past. So just a little aside. So the new creation echoes the, the original purpose and the bliss and the wonderful nature of the, of the original time when God walked with Adam and Eve in the garden. And then there's no more divide. Obviously there was a divide. They were cast out of the garden, separated from that again prophetic imagery showing that you know that, that there's, that there's this divorce between heaven and earth that C.S. Lewis wrote about but in the end God is present in visible fullness so you don't even need a, a temple because God is there you know um, you don't need the light of the sun or the moon uh, because the you know, God and, and the lamb are the light and again it, it's prophetic imagery it doesn't mean that there won't be a sun it just means, you know, it, it's an image saying that God is so there, that's all you need, you know. So, rather than the church being whisked off to heaven, heaven arrives on the earth. And in Revelation 21 verse 10 and also in Revelation 3 verse 12, you see the city, the new Jerusalem, you see the bride, which is the people of God. You see the, the city coming down out of heaven from God. So the direction of travel is earthward, not away from the earth. So the, this, this image is, is of God, and possibly all the church who have died and are currently in heaven coming down uh, to the earth. But I think it's also an image of us, the church, generally, universally being revealed to the earth. You know, its origin is in heaven, but the important thing is the direction of travel is towards the earth not the other way around. <clears throat> so this, this um, city is not a gigantic spacecraft that's going to take off from the earth and disappear into outer space, you know. <clears throat> Some people have almost envisaged it physically, drawn it out that way, you know. But 1 Thessalonians 4 is an interesting one, verses 15 to 17, and this is this passage where we're caught up in the clouds to meet 
Jesus in the air and so we will be with the Lord forever. And often people imagine that and in their minds they think Jesus comes down, everybody sees him, he's returning, wonderful, wonderful. The church is kind of caught up into mid-air in the clouds <clears throat> and then Jesus kind of does a U-turn and goes back into heaven <laughs> and we go up with him and disappear. Now, this is taught. That is taught, <laughs> you know. However, it's total nonsense <laughs> because the coming of the Lord, the, the, when it says the, Lord, the Lord's coming, the word used is parousia. And parousia means the presence of the Lord. It's more to do with presence than coming, actually. But what it refers to is the specific practice of when a king or a ruler was coming to the city that they were a king of and they would approach the city and the lookouts would see them coming and the officials, the, the residents of the city or the, the high-ranking officials would then get themselves ready and they would go out to meet this person and then they would do the U-turn and accompany this person on the final stage of their journey back to the city. So, it's like when, you, when all the dignitaries cluster at the airport. To yeah, it's like greeting somebody at the airport with a little sign, so, <laughs> or, it, or on a red carpet, or, the or the, yeah. That's right. Yeah, exactly. Send a lot of people there. So it's not Jesus that comes halfway down and does the U-turn. It's us. We get caught up to to meet Jesus in the clouds. Now, clouds are symbolic of the presence of God. Um, it, this is kind of picture language. Maybe we will physically lift off the earth. I don't know. But <laughs> the important thing is we meet him surrounded by the presence of God at his coming. But the point is not that we then, he, he turns around and goes off to heaven and takes us with him. That we then, with him, come down to a renewed and restored earth. So that's the image that Paul is is presenting. And this this parousia is, is about the royal presence. That's kind of what it means. It's the royal visit or you know, the royal presence of the dignitary coming to the city. So this is about God being tangibly present with us where we are. So again, the picture is of heaven and earth being reintegrated e eternally together and where God dwells permanently and visibly with his people. So this is something that happens at, at the end of the age, at the resurrection, as Paul is, is saying. But it's not about us going off somewhere else. It's about him and heaven coming to earth in fullness. Okay, so a few details then to, to finish off. What happens when we die? People talk about these mansions awaiting them in heaven. So John 14, verse 2, in my father's house are many rooms. And people talk about these as mansions. The word actually is dwelling places. And really what it means is guest houses. Mm -hmm. It actually means temporary accommodation on the, on the way somewhere. So I've got a quote here from a, a chap called Howard Snyder who's written a great book about uh, creation. Uh, salvation means creation healed or creation restored. Um, and uh, he says this, Biblically, heaven's mansions are temporary. They're not the end of the story. The rooms or the dwelling places Jesus promises in John 14 too, make up the interim guest house where the saints wait for Jesus to bring them back to earth, their true home, with their transformed bodies. This is, after all, the point of Jesus' return with power and great glory. The time for God to restore everything as promised. Uh, Acts 3.21 The time when God's will truly is done on earth as in heaven. 
Presumably this resting place, described figuratively in Revelation as under the altar, is where God's people who have passed from this life rest and wait, and where the martyrs cry out to God, how long? That's Revelation 6, verses 9 to 11. <clears throat> so the image here is, is, and this suggests that if we die as Christians before the return of Christ, then we will be conscious, we'll be with God, but we'll be looking forward to our resurrection. And you can read between the lines of what Paul writes um, in Philippians 1 and also in 2 Corinthians 5. He, he wants to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far, he says. Uh, but he convinces himself it's better if he stays because he's needed at that time for the church. But it's only a temporary stage. So in other words, we will. he's anticipating that we will be in the presence of God after we die. So if you say... I'm fond of saying the Bible doesn't say we're going to heaven when we die, when actually it kind of does in this context. We are going to heaven when we die, if we die before Jesus returns, um, but we'll be there temporarily waiting for our resurrection. We'll be with Christ, we'll be enjoying Christ. Uh, Paul seems to have anticipated that, but it's only temporary. Um, biblically, it's called paradise. Uh, we call it the intermediate state sometimes, but it's better to call it paradise, really. It sounds nicer, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. um, but paradise was the Jewish way of referring to this temporary place of rest prior to the resurrection. Um, some people have actually uh, proposed a, a, a kind of purgatory, um, which I'm not, not going to go into now, and I'm not particularly keen on the idea, but a sort of place of cleansing to kind of get our... Um, to complete our inner sanctification before we can go to heaven, but I, I don't really go with that. <laughs> I think once we're released from this body, um, we can be in Christ's presence and, uh, and everything else will take care of itself. So <clears throat> that's where we're going, um, but we're going to be looking forward to and anticipating our resurrection. So what happens with those who haven't accepted Christ in this life is a bit less clear than that. In the Jewish mind, everyone who died went to the grave, Sheol in Hebrew, or Hades in the Greek, which is sometimes incorrectly translated as hell um, in the New Testament. But this was the grave, the sort of the, the place, the abode of the dead, and people there awaited the final day of judgment. And, and after a while, the thinking developed to say that the, there were almost two compartments in this grave, where one was paradise, or Abraham's side, um, Luke 16, 22, and the other was a place of torment, although not hell. We'll cover hell another time. Um, exactly what that is, the Bible doesn't go into great detail. What is clear is that at the end of the age, there will be a resurrection of both groups of people. So Acts 24, 15, Daniel 12, verse 2, John 5, 28 to 29. So Hades is emptied on, the, on that day. What happens after that, we will not cover just now. But if we are in Christ, then I do believe that when we die, we are immediately in Christ's presence, um, and that we are, you know, that we're in a good place. But we're looking forward to the full coming of the kingdom, full coming of the new age, and our resurrection. So final, final thoughts, uh, bringing heaven here. So our hope of resurrection and this new created order, including a renewed earth, it does a lot more than just comfort us in our present troubles. 
it does a lot more than just encourage us to, to evangelise people to save their souls. It actually provides a motivation for and validates what we do now to improve the world. So if we're in, in the, engaged in, in environmental work, if we're teachers, if we're social workers, if we're involved in politics in some way, then we're not just rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic. We are not just keeping things tidy before everything is, is replaced. We are helping to care for God's world and to rebuild society to be like God. Now, as I said, that means that um, it anticipates, it's prophetic, it shows what God is like, it shows what God wants, but I believe also it is building something eternal. Mm. That what we sow now in those regards will somehow carry through into the coming age. Nothing is wasted. You know, and the, the communities and the relationships that we restore and preserve and build now will carry through. The blessing of that will carry through into the coming age. We don't understand quite how that's going to happen yet, um, but it shows the kingdom of God has come. Richard Stearns um, has said this, focusing almost exclusively on the afterlife reduces the importance of what God expects of us in this life. The kingdom of God in us was intended to change and challenge everything in our fallen world in the here and now. It was not meant to be a way to leave the world, but rather the means to actually redeem it. And that's a, a corrective to some of the, the faulty thinking. So all of that, of course, re reaches a climax with our resurrection, glorious new bodies, the dawning of the new age. But right now our job is to see God's will being done and his kingdom coming in the here and now just like it is in heaven. So I will close with a quote from uh, Tom Wright, as I am wont to do. Um, Jesus' resurrection is the beginning of God's new project, not to snatch people away from the earth to heaven, but to colonize earth with the life of heaven. That, after all, is what the Lord's Prayer is about.